You are listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues in a unique spiritual perspective based on the principles of the Baha'i Faith. For information on the Baha'i Faith itself, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B A H A I.org. Or you can call the toll free number 1 800 22 Unite. I recorded a conversation I had with Shireen Self, a Baha'i currently living in Westfield. She's an educator who has traveled throughout the world, including Panama, Bolivia, and China. While in Springfield, she held the position of multicultural specialist for the Springfield Public Schools and was awarded Global Educator of the Year in 2000 for her community work in Springfield. To begin the conversation, I asked Shireen where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was uh, born in Iran, in Tehran. And my family were all from Jewish background, but I'm the third generation Baha'i. So my grandparents, my parents, and I am Baha'i. Mm-hmm. Well, it was always different to be raised in Iran as a Baha'i, because it was like you were a forbidden specimen. And it was, you know, you were usually different from other children because... Your fasting time was different, you know, and, uh, and, and any situation. I used to say to my friends from the beginning, by the way, I'm a Baha'i. Mm. Because if you wouldn't tell them from the beginning and they found, you know, they would find out later on, it was like a very big shock. Mm. Why didn't you tell them? Because it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, well, once I was a close friend with somebody in an office, we had just started working and things. And then I told her later on in you know, conversation I was behind, and she had tears in her eyes. Why? Mm-hmm. But you're such a good person. No. Why you didn't tell me from the beginning? That's impossible. It, this is all because of the stereotypes and because of, you know, wrong. What did they preach. think? What did they think Baha'is were doing? Well, as long as you are not a Muslim and you came after, you know, you're a religion after. Islam, mm-hmm. that is by itself, is a heresy and it's a bad thing. It doesn't matter even what you say or what you believe. They won't listen even to that. You know, in the mosque and places, you know, they talk about bad about the Baha'is and things. And fabricated many things. And the masses believe, you know, they hear and believe. If they don't know personally a Baha'i. Mm-hmm. So... Now this was before the revolution. Yes, actually I was not in Iran the revolution. Mm-hmm. I left eight years, seven, eight years before that. Mm-hmm. Actually, Iran was in its most glorious time, and the Shah, and the celebrations, and 2,500 of uh, history, and, you know, different mm-hmm. things. So mm-hmm. I left when it was, you know, relatively safer for the Baha'is, or more But open. there was still persecution during oh, the yes. Shah's time? Yes, of course. I remember when I was uh, maybe six, seven years old, maybe six, 
and uh, we lived very near to the Baha'i Center, National Baha'i Center you know, of Tehran, the center in Tehran. And we used to walk there for our, you know, Sunday classes or Baha'i classes for all the meetings. He had beautiful, huge, huge playgrounds for children. He had peacocks and, you know, have so beautiful memories from then. And uh, it, uh, they started uh, destroying it. You know, mm. and I was the witness standing there and seeing, you know, with my sister, and I couldn't understand because I was very young. But my sister was explaining to me some things, so I saw that, and we were never able to go back there. Mm. Um, when I started a, a job, very good job with the government, and it was a, for the oil company, uh, which was, you know, and lots of, uh, I mean, I, I had to pass a very difficult test examinations, they had examination, many, many hurdles, mm. and I passed all of them, mm. and I was one of the first, they were going to start um, training people for IBM and, and computer programs and things, mm. so I passed the first, you know, few months, and everything passed, then they gave us papers to make contract to become a permanent, and it had a, a column for religion, and of course I was Baha'i, and I was fired. So that was one of the things that I, you know, felt. But you know, growing in the uh, in Iran uh, as a Baha'i had two sides to it. Within the Baha'i community, I was one of the luckiest person you can imagine. There were vibrant youth activities, children activities, men and women equal, participating in everything, education is um, was encouraged. Everything was fantastic. But you know. You were persecuted as soon as you were in the outside community. But you know, usually when you are deprived or you are forbidden of something, you become even more courageous and, and you become more fervent. So it never dampens. You know, mm. you become even more firm in your faith because we knew that we loved all the religions, we accepted all the religions. We studied in our classes, children classes, about all the religions, talking about you know equality of man and woman and, and uh, education of children, the importance of family, and you know that was kind of like a source of pride for me. So what was happening outside of the community uh, didn't bother me as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, as you know, the Baha'i faith, they are not priests or, or leaders, one person that would be in charge of, you know, things. So everybody has the same responsibility and privileges and opportunities. So, and the Universal House of Justice, it is, you know... The, the supreme body of the Baha'is of the world. Yes. Um, they have plans that the Baha'is carry out, and, and they are plans from grassroots, from local to regional to country, national, and then international plans. And in one of those plans that the Universal House of Justice had, they needed some Iranian Baha'is, youth, to go to some other countries to help with the youth and activities of others. And they needed one for Panama, mm-hmm. Republic of Panama in Central America. So I volunteered to go there. And uh, and it took me one year to get there because I went you know, to England, stayed with my sister there. Then I went to Jamaica, stayed with another sister, visiting and things. So I finally got there, mm-hmm. and um, and 
I, I lived there, I loved Panama. I lived there almost like um, almost like 12 years. Mm. Eventually my youngest sister and my parents joined me there also. And I had the best time of my life in Panama. Mm. So many youth, you know, helping each other and uh, doing activities uh, in schools and all over. Mm -hmm. And they were building a new house of worship there. So I participated in putting the grass and cleaning, you know. We had to walk a hill, um, uh, a hill just walking. There was no transportation out there. So it was very interesting. Mm -hmm. And um, so I stayed there about, about 12 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Later on, I went back, and the reason I left was because I got married, mm -hmm. um, and uh, my husband needed to finish his studies, so we came to U.S. Mm -hmm. He's American, so mm -hmm. to so he can finish his studies. So, how old were you when you went to Panama? I was about twenty-three years old. Twenty-three years old. Yes. And did you did you go to school in Iran or? Oh yes, and, yes. So you went to college. I went to school in Iran, and I went a two year mm -hmm. uh, to college. I got an associate degree in mm -hmm. translating English, interpreting English, Persian, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, also I got training in how to be a draftswoman mm -hmm. or draftsman. They call them, you mm -hmm. know, doing uh, architectural drawings. drawings buildings and things. I loved it. So, so I had training on that. So mm -hmm. when I went to England first and when I went first to Panama, that's mm -hmm. what I did. Mm -hmm. okay. I did in architectural drawings mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. And when you uh, relocated to the United States, uh, where did you end up initially? Yeah, um, we lived four years in, well, three years in Florida. Mm -hmm. and my two children were born there, mm -hmm. Tuba and Hashem. Mm -hmm. Then, for one year, we went to Michigan. Mm -hmm. That's where his parents were living. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we went back to Panama. Oh, okay. We went back to Panama. He finished his studies? And he finished his studies and got one year of kind of experience in the mm -hmm. U.S. Mm -hmm. And we moved back to Panama. Mm -hmm. And uh, we lived there about four years. And my children, you know, at the same time, learned the three languages, Persian, Spanish, and English, the mm. same time, fluently, you know. Oh, wow. And uh, then we moved to Bolivia, South America. I just want to say something about Panama. I loved mm. Panama because, well, it's a very, most people happy and, and you know, vibrant country, but also... Um, they have, you know, indigenous people, and they have three tribes there, Kuna Indians and Choco Indians and Guaymi Indians. And Guaymi Indians live in the mountains, the Choco Indians live in the jungle, and the Kuna Indians live in islands. And I always worked, uh, but the minute I had vacation or time, I would go to those places. Mm. I loved it. It was so beautiful, so pure people. And and I would visit Baha'is there, you know. I remember one of them uh, was blind, mm. but he would walk through the mountains. He had memorized so many of the tablets of Baha'u'llah and prayers, mm -hmm. and he would go and teach other people about the Baha'i. Mm. And I remember one man, uh, uh, Guaymi Indians, he didn't know how to read or write. But he said, 
As soon as he became Baha'i and he heard that Baha'u'llah has said that everybody should learn, you know, has education and have to read and write, he immediately put himself through and he started mm. and so he was, you know, literate and could read and write and everything. Mm. So, um, each group of, of these indigenous people had their specific culture and, uh, and characteristics, mm. fantastic. Mm. So I really enjoyed my, my stay there, mostly because of this also, you know, visiting the friends there mm -hmm. and those people. Mm -hmm. And everywhere I went, I tried to learn at least some of their, their language so I could, you know, communicate with them. So I always spoke a few sentences here and there uh, in their languages, so that made mm -hmm. them happy also. So then you moved to Bolivia. Now why did you leave Panama and go to Bolivia? Well, uh, my husband, before we got married, he lived there for eight years. So I guess it was his turn to go his part of the world, although he was American, he's from Michigan. but, mm -hmm. but um, So we went to check that place out. And um, so, so Bolivia is very different. It's one of the very few countries, at least in South America, maybe one of two countries or three, that the majority of people are indigenous still. And, you know, you see indigenous people in all way of life, you know, and uh, they, they still, most of them use their uh, typical folkloric clothes and, and this kind of thing. So it was very interesting, mm -hmm. very peaceful people. And they were, I never could overhear when two people were talking because they soft spoken, very nice. Mm -hmm. There also they had this two, at least two uh, I know of uh, indigenous uh, tribes. One of them was uh, Aymara and one of them was Chokoi. I learned the language very good. I could mm -hmm. give speeches, you oh know. Yes, I, I loved it, and I you know, I loved people. So wherever I go, I try to learn the language. With that language, I could learn more. I had more time. The people were very pure, peaceful. We stayed there four years. Mm -hmm. We lived in a kind of an altitude, not in La Paz, which is the capital. It's very high, like in the middle. So most of the time, like you feel if you couldn't run or mm. going up the stairs, you feel like a very old lady or man, you know, breathing hard. <laughs> <laughs> and whenever I went, you know, let's say back to U.S. or to Panama, came back, you had to readjust again, mm. you know, because you feel like dizzy and, and these kind of things in high altitude. I had also beautiful time in... in um, I loved, you know, people in Bolivia and... and uh, I made any all these places I made so many close friends and it was so hard when you had to leave all those friends behind and with some of them I'm still very close we call each other soul sisters you know soul friends so even you know we don't hear from each other five years the next time we hear it's just like we just saw each other yesterday so we were there four years and the kids were growing up you know, and uh, how were they? How old were they at this point? At this point, uh, my daughter was ten years old, and my son was eight years old. Mm -hmm. uh, we came back to U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, we went and lived a little bit in Michigan, uh, one year in Michigan, one year in Ohio. And this was mainly because of the kids that you came back to the U.S. Well, there were different reasons. Okay. You know, it depends all the time. You know, if if we could find good jobs, mm -hmm. if you know. 
different different reasons. Right. Yeah. So then I moved to Western Massachusetts, okay. and that was uh, 1990. Now, what drew you to Western Massachusetts? Oh, I came. Yeah, it was 1992. Sorry. Well, I had some friends here that I had met mm. in Michigan, and they had encouraged me to come here. And also there was a college here that, that, that I was interested to get my master's in education, you know, their methods, I like their methods. So I came uh, to go to uh, that college to get my master's. Mm -hmm. And by that time we had moved a lot. So my children said, no more moving, please. <laughs> uh, and uh, my daughter especially, you know, at that time she was, you know, sixth grade. And she said, you know, please, you know, now I have my friends and everything. So, so I agreed. We mm. didn't move all the way until they graduated from, from high school and my son graduated from high school and they left. Then I went to China. Right. <laughs> yeah. But you did quite a bit in Springfield. I know that you had a interesting position at the Springfield school system. Mm -hmm. I wanted you to describe for okay. us. Well, I was the multicultural specialist for Springfield Public Schools. I mainly trained teachers in how to help children of every background to succeed, ha have uh, high expectations from all the students, black, white, big, small, Latino, any, any. Right? Because, you know, ch uh, Springfield is very multicultural and uh, most teachers were white European backgrounds so we needed a lot of cooperation to, to make things work. Mm. Um, and uh, I also went to classrooms and did activities with the students, teaching students to be tolerant and help each other. I talked about you know respecting for women and girls and equality for men and women talked about, you know, stereotypes, elimination of prejudices, about how important it is to realize that scientifically we are all members of really one human family. And spiritually, you know, if you go to religions, that's what they teach. And especially in the Baha'i faith, you know, there's the oneness of the human family is the main topic. So, so talking about all these things and helping students, counselors, principals, everybody. And, and there was, you know, there were a lot of problems of misunderstanding uh, of each other, different cultures, you know, different languages, different talents. So mm -hmm. it did a lot of work. I also had, from the beginning when I came, I started a children and youth workshop. Uh, they did, uh, it was really about social issues, but what they did, they learned about social issues, uh, abuse of drugs, and as I said, respect for women, and not having prejudice, and harmony, unity. And we discussed these things, then they made up dances and songs, and then we went and performed for schools, or, you know, and to do Big E, you know, in, in other uh, states, in Vermont, in Maine, and I think when we went to Washington, D.C., they performed different uh, dances and songs, and they talked about these issues. Mm -hmm. So it was very successful. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, actually, well, they got many awards. 
But one of the awards that uh, that I was uh, honored to, to get was that my thesis was about uh, a curriculum to help students to uh, be harmonious and unity in, in schools. Mm. So that was approved by school committee, you know, council. And um, I used it in classes and in schools. In one of these schools, there's some a group of students of different backgrounds. They had so many fights that it was completely out of control. Mm. I remember they called me and said, please, can you come and help? So I went there and I remember this was like, you know, let's say we're working with 15 students. The first day, it took uh, us like, you know, six adults, just 45 minutes to get these students to the same room. They didn't want to even be in the same room. Mm. It was very bad, you know, it was Puerto Ricans, African Americans, and whites. And so after doing activities for, for a while, these students became like close friends. Nobody could believe it. They became close friends. So there was a big conference, uh, the World of Difference, a World of Difference, Team Harmony, in Boston with 11,000 students and teachers and things. Mm. They had nominated our group, my program, and the, the, the youth that did this for a prize. And, and they won the prize, the award, and it was in the presence of then uh, First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton. And we got the award, mm. you know, for this youth coming so close uh, together. Mm. So these are the kind of things I used to do. And I had also my consulting work. So I, you know, other schools like from Hatfield, Weberham, other places would call me, colleges, universities. And I would go and do, you know, mm. team building, conflict management, and diversity issues. Can you describe one assignment that you that you thought was interesting that you gave your students of this multicultural class? Oh, sure. There's so many. Mm. One of the activity was that what I did was um, I I took a classroom before they come in, and I set three tables. At one table, I put a very beautiful tablecloth. I put flowers. I put china uh, and silverware, put, you know, a lot of foods, a big cake, all these things, one plate. And next table, I put some, some plastic uh, plates, like, you know, six, seven plastic uh, plates and plastic spoons. And, uh, and I put all these things together and uh, just put some cookies, you know, maybe, maybe three cookies there. Another table, no silverware, nothing, nothing, and and just one cookie. And when they came in, they draw, they draw uh, numbers. Number one would sit on one table. All the things, the big cake, all the fruit, the silverware, the flowers, everything just for that one person, that student. The next table, like five or six sat, and they had to share the three cookies. And it was the time that they were hungry. <laughs> and then at a table, there was only one, and maybe they were about you know, at least 10 of them sitting there. And they had to share that. And then I asked them, does this person that has all his food by himself has any reason, any cause to fight with anybody? 
No. He has everything he wants to. That table, you know, so they realize that not having resources and not having, you know, things makes people, when they have to compete, you know, when, when the minorities have to compete with things. So that was something like one of the things that was mm. eye-opening for them, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. They had to see it, you know, firsthand. Mm -hmm. So you've taught not only in the public schools, but you, you've also oh, yes. taught in... I, I Describe your college yeah. experience. Yeah. I taught at two area colleges also. Um, and one of them, and Springfield College, I taught race, religion, and culture. And in the School of Human, uh, Human Services. Since it was about religion, race, religion, and culture, and one of the assignments they had, they had to go and investigate a religion directly from that religion. They have to go to a mosque or synagogue or a church or a Baha'i center or any other religion that they chose and interview people, talk to people, then write a paper about it. Mm -hmm. Then I brought representatives from different religions that gave talk to them. So that was the time that... And we did you know, activities about race mm -hmm. also and culture, mm -hmm. these kind of things. We're listening to a conversation I had with Shireen Self, an educator who has traveled throughout the world and who is the former multicultural specialist for the Springfield Public Schools and was awarded Global Educator of the Year in 2000. We'll return to our conversation with Shireen after a short break. You're listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. <laughs> Justice is allowing fairness to guide your actions and decisions. Justice is someone being judged individually, not based on the capacity of another, which also means that people receive what they need to survive or accomplish a goal. Justice is being open to ideas that are best for a given situation. First and foremost, truthfulness is being able to be honest to oneself. And only then is one able to proceed with extracting honesty and truthfulness from others. Patience. First thing I think of when I think of patience is my son Adam. He's developmentally delayed and even the smallest thing takes so much time to accomplish. Every day is a test for me to remember, stop, take a deep breath, be patient because when I'm not patient, the frustration is overwhelming. And when I'm patient, I can enjoy the journey without worrying so much about the destination. Kindness to me is an important aspect in my life. Kindness means being respectful, making someone feel better when they're down, and allowing someone to take your place. Being kind to others makes me feel better about myself. Welcome back to A Baha'i Perspective. 
I'm Warren O'Destulet, your host. We're listening to a conversation I had with Shireen Self, an educator who has traveled throughout the world, including Panama, Bolivia, and China. While in Springfield, she held the position of multicultural specialist for the Springfield Public Schools and was awarded Global Educator of the Year in 2000 for her community work in Springfield. I asked Shireen about her efforts at community building while she was in Springfield. Well, you know, in, in Springfield there was a lot of um, incidents with the police and African-American community, Latino communities, and, and there was a lot of disunity, kind of. So a group of us thought that if we bring all these people together and uh, do a retreat, maybe that would help. So um, we brought, we did a conference, a retreat, a conference, and then a retreat with the police department and edu- uh, you know, school department and the health department and the, um, the attorney general of Massachusetts, you know, all these departments, higher education department. And we brought all these people together. First, you know, we brought many people from different parts of, uh, of the country to give talks and workshops. And and then we had a retreat, and we had we had many follow up meetings and things to to see you know go deep into the issues mm-hmm. and have people face to face talk to each other to understand each other. So I was one of the organizer, and mm-hmm. you know, and, and I had workshops there and mm-hmm. this. And they did also one uh, another one in, I think in '97. It wasn't as big as that one. Mm-hmm. And and I usually was, I always collaborated with community-based organizations like, you know, Boys Club, YMCA, all the things I used to go and have workshop, working with the community, working with parent organizations, always actively participating and helping in different levels mm-hmm. uh, in, in Springfield City when mm-hmm. I lived. Yeah. And in 2000, you received... An award? Yes, well, in the year 2000, I was named one of the Global Educator of the Year of Massachusetts, and I received my award in, in Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, this was, you know, for people that had contributed and influenced the, the community mm-hmm. in a positive way, mm-hmm. you know, bringing mm-hmm. harmony and mm-hmm. unity to the community. So it was your collaborative efforts yes. of the community that they had recognized? Uh, yeah, it was, a you know, the, the children and youth workshop, because this is all a volunteer, you know, I didn't get paid for any you know, of these jobs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so for all the things that I did together, culmination of all the things, you know. Shireen's mm-hmm. most recent endeavor was her travels to China. At the conclusion of the interview, I asked her how it was that she had this opportunity. There was a change in the Springfield budget and everything, and it didn't seem that I was going to be able to contribute as much as I loved to do. Mm-hmm. So, and meanwhile, I got an offer. I had gone to China already on an educational tour, and I, I loved China, and I said, one day I'm going to come back here. So I got an offer to teach a very top 10 university uh, in China, and I accepted it, since my kids were already in college away. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, my daughter finally decided, and she came with me. For two years, she stayed there. I stayed for three years. So uh, at the beginning, I actually, I taught also in classrooms with this, you know, children, very young children, and 
and to uh, middle school, but mostly I taught at that university, and I taught English as second language, uh, or required college English, but also taught an uh, elective course that was new skills for a global society, and the student loved it, and it was so different from what they were used to. Because it is changing, China is changing a lot, but mostly up to now the educational system is based on memorization and examination. That's it. But now they are changing and they are willing to change. And, and when I went and I brought group work and research and, you know, and, and role play and music and dance, they were shocked and they were, you know, they loved it, but at the beginning, every time, every semester, I had 400 students. Yes, mm. classes are big there. <laughs> wow. So they started, you know, at the beginning, they were just baffled. Mm. What is this? What? And I would give them some memorization to do also to make them happy, you know. <laughs> so I, I used to teach these, you know, very updated issues that they really need to succeed in a global society. Mm-hmm. You know, there are there are also um, prejudices and stereotypes very strongly, and the station of women and all these things. So they need they need a lot of this kind of work. So mm-hmm. so I I did that for three years. Mm-hmm. Then I missed my kids a lot, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and I, I decided to come back for a while. You mm-hmm. know, who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe one day I go back. Well, thank you, Shamin, very much for sharing. You're this. welcome. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Shireen Self. Shireen is an educator and Baha'i who has traveled throughout the world, who was the former multicultural specialist for Springfield Public Schools and who was awarded Global Educator of the Year in 2000 for her community work in Springfield. If you want specific information on the Baha'i faith itself, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you will join us next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
shall be glad. Shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Then they shall see the glory of the Lord. Then the prophet Isaiah goes on to say they shall see the light. Together up the mountain, on the king's highway, to Zion, just to behold the glory of the Lord.
in hand.
associate therefore in this great human garden even as flowers grow and blend together side by side
You are listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. 